This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Just want to mention, you know, the, the title of this seminar is uh, having to do with the feasts and with uh, Pentecost and tongues and so on. Uh, we've dealt only with Pentecost and. Uh, You know, there are six other feasts that are very closely related with Pentecost. Pentecost is at the very heart. It's the very center of the Hebrew feasts. Uh, I mentioned yesterday that if anyone is interested in the full series, uh, I did a 12-hour presentation on uh, the Hebrew feasts, the meaning of the Hebrew feasts. And that's available on CD and MP3. Uh, It's available at our Secrets Unsealed booth. I would highly recommend that you get that. Uh, because uh, there's some amazing information there on the, on the fulfillment of the Hebrew feasts. Uh, also, uh, there's a very important book that I've written that's called Worship at Satan's Throne. It deals with uh, problems in the area of worship in, in the Adventist church at present. That's also available on DVD. And um, if you want to go even more extensive, there is uh, a series on the sanctuary where I deal with all of the Adventist message from the perspective of the sanctuary. There's 32 one-hour presentations, and I cover all of the doctrines of the Adventist church from the perspective of the sanctuary. Uh, for example, there's just one whole sermon on, um, on repentance and confession and faith in Christ as being the conditions for receiving forgiveness of sins. So um, if you're interested, come by the Secrets Unsealed booth. I will be there this afternoon, Lord willing, and also this evening. Um, Even if you're not going to purchase anything, I'll be there. If you have questions, if you want to make comments, or just say hello, or take a picture, I'll be there. I I will not promise that your camera won't break, but but I would definitely be there for you. Okay, let's uh, discuss the return to Babel. The builder of the Tower of Babel was a man called Nimrod. The name Nimrod means rebellion. And the intention of Nimrod was to build a civilization that would be in total and complete rebellion against God. He wanted to consolidate everyone in a city, build a tower to the greatness of that society and basically demoralize the world shortly after the flood. Now, God, of course, we're told in Genesis 11, saw what was happening. And God said, I'm not going to allow the whole human race to come together and to rebel against me so that any righteous people that are left will disappear from the earth. Because basically, they all spoke the same language, and they were all on the same page. And, and it says in Genesis 11, nothing will detract them from what they intend to do. The real intention of the devil was to totally demoralize the human race and to lead even the holy line to be assimilated into that culture so that there would be no holy line from which the Messiah could come. The devil does that all throughout the Old Testament. I've shown that in my series, Cracking the Genesis Code, 
where, we, where I deal with the issue of the seed, how God is preserving the seed, how the devil is trying to prevent the seed from coming by using different methods. So God saw this and he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to solve this problem. And so we're told that at Babel, God gave the builders the ability to speak the language, languages of the nations. In other words, they did not speak gibberish. He gave the builders the ability to speak the languages of the nations so that they could not be on the same cage and communicate with one another and form a united front against the government of God. Now, is it true that it, it is much more difficult for rebellion to consolidate when you have different cultures and different nations and different languages? You see, God was wise. He says, I'm going to divide them into cultures and nations and everything, that you will have a pocket of rebellion here, a pocket of rebellion there, but you will not have a united rebellion. And that's the reason why God gave this gift of tongues. So the purpose of tongues at the Tower of Babel was to confuse and to divide. But of course, that created a serious problem, and that is that on the day of Pentecost... You know, you have all these nations, and it was difficult to share the gospel. So God says, I'll solve the problem that was caused at Babel. And I'll give the disciples the ability to speak the languages of the nations so that the gospel can be shared. Now, there are only two verses in the Bible that use a combination of three words, three key words. Let's go to Genesis chapter 11 and verse 7. Genesis chapter 11 and verse 7. There are three words there that are very, very important. I'm going to mention what they are. It says, God is speaking, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language. That's the first word that I want us to notice. The word language is the word glossa, where we get the word glossolalia from. Glossolalia means laleo in Greek means to speak and glossa means tongues. So glossolalia means to speak in tongues. And so the first word that I want us to notice is let us confuse their language, their glossa. That they may not understand. That's another key word. Understand, it's the Greek word akuo. To hear, but hear with understanding. In other words, let us confuse their language, their glossa that they may not understand a cool one another's speech. That's the third word, speech. The word speech is the word phone, where we get the word megaphone from, megaphone, see? And so basically what happened at the Tower of Babel was that God confused their language so that no one could understand their speech. So the purpose at Babel was to confuse, to divide, so that rebellion could not consolidate. Did God bridge the gulf and solve that problem at Pentecost? He solved the problem. Because at Pentecost, the purpose was to unite. And it was to communicate. So at Pentecost, God undid, to a great degree, what He had done at Babel. Now, Those same three words in a different language, but they're also used in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 2. 
The only other verse in the Bible that uses those three words, which are language, understand, and speech. Here the Apostle Paul says, For he who speaks, that's the word phone. Now, when I mentioned that Genesis 11 uses the word glossa, akuo, and phone, you need to understand that it's in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But I'm making the connection in the same language, Old and New Testament. Now, notice it says, for he who speaks, that is the word phone, in a tongue, that's the word glossa, does not speak to men but to God, for no one, there's a cool, no one what? No one understands him, however, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. Mysteries to whom? Mysteries to those that are listening. And, and some people say, see, he's speaking a mysterious language because he's speaking mysteries. No, no. See, the, the Apostle Paul uses the word mystery to, pe- to speak about the mystery of the preaching of the gospel. The mystery is the gospel that was hidden from ages past and now is revealed. So just the word mysteries doesn't mean that this is some type of uh, esoteric language that uh, only the speaker understands. No. It, it, simply the Apostle Paul is saying, he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God because those that are listening don't really what? don't really understand. Now, what was happening in the church of Corinth then? The church of Corinth, instead of following the path of the book of Acts, was wanting to go back where? Was going, going back to Babel. Instead of the gift of tongues having the purpose of communication, the gift of tongues was to prevent communication there in Corinth. Now, I'd like us to go to the book of Revelation where we find the final fulfillment of the prophecy of Genesis chapter 11. Is there going to be an end time Babylon? Sure. Is it going to be similar in many ways to the first Babylon? Is the whole world going to want to come together? Have you ever heard of globalism? The New World Order? The United Nations? They're wanting to bring the whole world together. In fact, their final intention is to get rid of the the system of individual nations and establish a worldwide government in rebellion against God. That's the intention and the purpose. And of course, Ellen White makes it clear that Protestants, Roman Catholics, and worldings will see in this union a way in which the millennium of peace can be introduced on planet Earth. But things will get worse and worse and worse. And so, as has happened in history, they'll say, now, you know, we're all coming together. Why is this happening? There's a divisive people And because they are not in harmony with this union, and they insist on keeping a different day, I don't know if you're aware of what's happening in Europe, but they're pushing for a Sunday law. It begins, of course, like a civil Sunday law, for the family. 
See, Constantine's Sunday law was, was, was a secular Sunday law. It was, not, it was a civil holiday. But then in 336, just a few years later, it morphed into a religious observance commanded by the church. And so Sunday laws always morph from civil institutions to religious institutions. And so you have in Revelation a repetition of what happened at the Tower of Babel. We have to study what happened at the Tower of Babel. You know, God established different languages to establish different nations and different cultures so that evil could not consolidate. But at the end time, even having different nations with different cultures and different languages, the world will come together. Even after God has divided the nations. Now let's go to the book of Revelation and pursue what is going to happen with end time Babylon. Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we believe in a triune Godhead. This is a doctrine that's being attacked vehemently by some people in the church. Unfortunately, because the spirit of prophecy is clear that all three are divine and all three are persons. That does not mean that we have three gods. It means that we have one God composed of three persons. And you say, well, how is it possible that one plus one plus one equals one? It's very simple. The Bible says that when a man and a woman get married, they are no longer two, they are one. Interesting. Do we have a husband and wife here? But, but hus- husband and wife, I see you there. Okay, husband and wife. You know what? I'm seeing only one of you there. No, now I'm seeing double. Are they one? Are they two? Yes. They're two persons, but they're to be united. See, in the Bible, the word one, as it applies to God, refers to unity. Unity. The word echad. Jesus prayed, I want these disciples all to be one. But there were twelve. And Babel says, all of the people are one. But there were many people. And so don't, let, don't get all caught up in this, that if you believe that God is three, you, then, then you can't believe that there's one God. Because there is one God. But that God is composed of three persons. And this afternoon I'm going to talk to you about that. Not about the Trinity. I'm going to use the Trinity to talk about another problem that we're facing now in the church. Notice that God is triune. Now who is the absolute ruler and king in this relationship of the three persons of the Godhead? God the Father is the ruler. Ellen White identifies him as the king. And the Bible describes him in Revelation as the one who is 
and was and is to come. Right? That's the way that he is described in Revelation chapter 1. But now listen to what I'm going to say. The Father is the absolute ruler, the King. He is the one who is, was, and is to come. But the Father delegates his authority to the Son. Right? Have you ever read Matthew 28? Even after the incarnation, what does Jesus say? All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Who gives it to him? His disciples? No. He receives his authority from whom? From God the Father. Jesus received authority from his Father to come to this earth. And listen. After Jesus receives authority from his Father, because he said several times that he speaks by the authority of his Father, he had a three and a half year ministry. At the end of his three and a half year ministry, he received a mortal wound. But when he resurrected, his mortal wound was healed. And the whole world heard the gospel and responded to the gospel. Interesting. Does that kind of ring a bell about some other power that is, that is actually counterfeiting the role of the Son? Incidentally, when Revelation 13 says that the beast has a deadly wound, it's the identical expression in Greek that is used in Revelation chapter 5, where it speaks a lamb as though it had been slain. Identical in Greek. But then Jesus ascends to heaven. And he delegates his authority to whom? He delegates his authority to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit operates in the name of Jesus. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, fire comes down from heaven. And the disciples receive power from the fire that descends from heaven. And they share the gospel with power. And as a result, thousands upon thousands follow the Lamb. Are you catching the picture? Now, does the devil have a counterfeit trinity? Yes, he does. Let's pursue that. It's Babylon, by the way. His counterfeit trinity is the trinity of Babylon. Go with me to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 19. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 19. You see, the great city Babylon is composed of three parts. It says, now the great city was divided into three parts. The cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon, what's the name of the city? Great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. How many parts does Babylon have? Three. Now what are those three parts? Let's go to verse 13, just a few verses farther above verse 19. 
It says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Babylon has three parts. What are those three parts? The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Incidentally, these have been introduced before in the book of Revelation because in Revelation 12, you have the dragon. In the first 10 verses of Revelation 13, you have the beast. And in the last half of Revelation 13, you have the false prophet, the lamb, the beast that has two horns like a lamb. Are you following me? So in other words, the devil also operates in threes. Now what is the purpose of this threefold union? Verse 14, For they are spirits of demons, performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world. And what is the purpose? To gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. The purpose is to gather the world in rebellion against God. So does the devil have a counterfeit trinity? Who in this uh, relationship has the absolute power? Who is the ruler or the king of this arrangement? It is the dragon. Do you know that the dragon is described in Revelation as the one who is, was, and is to come? In Revelation chapter 17? He's the absolute ruler. The one that calls the shots. But let me ask you, does he delegate his authority to another power? Yes. Yes. You find in Revelation 13 verse 2, it says the dragon gave the beast his seat, his power, and great authority. So like the father delegates his authority to his son, the dragon delegates his authority to the beast. And then the beast has a ministry that lasts how long? Three and a half years. Time, times, and the dividing of time. And after its ministry of three and a half years, what does it receive? It receives a deadly wound. But prophecy says that its deadly wound will be what? Will be healed. And it will preach a gospel to the world, and the whole world will wonder after the beast, just like When the gospel was preached, the whole world wondered after Jesus, the Lamb. The devil is counterfeiting the work of God's trinity. But there's one power that still remains. You see, there is a helper of the beast. And who is the beast's helper? The beast helper is the false prophet who speaks for the beast. Like the Holy Spirit speaks for Christ. And like in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit which is sent by Jesus makes fire descend from heaven in the sight of men. The false prophet makes fire descend from heaven in the sight of men. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 13 says that the false prophet brings fire down from heaven in the sight of men. 
You say, is that speaking about literal fire? Was there literal fire on the day of Pentecost? Yes, there was. Did that persuade the people there that something exceptional was happening? Absolutely. Are there going to be literal tongues of fire at the end of time? Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 54. Ellen White says this, Satan will work through his agents. Hmm. Wonder who those could be. Satan will work through his agents who have departed from the faith to bring fire down from heaven in the sight of men. Counterfeit revival of the Holy Spirit. Bringing fire down from heaven in the sight of men to persuade human beings that this is of God. You say, now could this really happen? Several years ago, I was in southern Arizona preaching. And one evening, uh, after the service, I turned on the television. It was a Friday night, but I turned it on to TBN, (laughs) a religious channel. Because I like to keep up with what's happening in the Protestant world. And there was Paul Crouch, the president and founder of TBN. And he was interviewing Benny Hinn. This was November 13, 2001. And basically, Paul Crouch was asking Benny Hinn how he became a preacher. And Benny Hinn was explaining that, you know, he's a Palestinian. Uh, that he, had, he began having dreams and visions. And he saw himself in these dreams and visions preaching in great stadiums with thousands of people. And then he said these words, and they were so impressive that I stayed up. You know, they rebroadcast this program. I didn't have any paper or pen or anything. You know, when I first saw it, I said, I got to write this down. So the program was going to be presented again at 1 o'clock in the morning. So I said, I got to stay up. And I wrote down the words that he spoke. Listen to what he said. In the last 12 months, I have been having some new dreams and visions. Some amazing dreams. I have been seeing fire. I have seen myself in stadiums where literal fire was falling from heaven. The glory of God is about to be revealed visibly. And then he referred to the experience of Pentecost as proof. The experience of Elijah on Mount Carmel and the pillar of fire that led Israel through the wilderness. False revival of the Holy Spirit. Led by a counterfeit trinity or a counterfeit Godhead. And incidentally, folks, you know, there are three angels that speak for the Godhead. The devil also has three angels. They're called three evil spirits. And they come out of the mouth. You know, usually we say that the, the dragon represents Satan, spiritualism. And we say that the beast represents the Roman Catholic papacy. And the false prophet represents apostate Protestantism. I agree with 
with our traditional interpretation of saying that the beast is the papacy and that the false prophet or uh, the beast with lamb-like horns represents apostate Protestantism. But the dragon does represent Satan. And it represents the civil powers through whom Satan works. In other words, the dragon represents the civil or secular powers of the world. They are the ones that have the rulership and the authority, the political authority. You say, how do you know that? Ellen White in Testimonies to Ministers says, princes, rulers, and governors has placed upon themselves the name of Antichrist and are represented by the dragon. And we don't we say that the dragon that stood next to the woman to devour the child represents the represents Rome, the civil power of Rome? Absolutely. Actually, all three are controlled by spiritualism. The dragon is not spiritualism. All three are controlled because the evil spirits like frogs come out of the mouths of all three. So what you have is a unity of the secular powers of the world, the political powers of the world, with the Roman Catholic papacy and with apostate Protestantism. That's a triple union at the end of time. Incidentally, just to, to, to go one step further on this, if you go to Revelation chapter 19, you find this threefold union again. You know when Jesus is coming on the white horse at his second coming? It says there, I saw the beast, I saw the kings of the earth, the beast, and the false prophet standing to fight against the one who was on the white horse. Now, interesting that she would say, the kings of the earth, the beast, and the false prophet. So who would the kings of the earth represent? They represent the kings of the earth. Because it says kings of the earth, the beast, and the false prophet. Kings of the earth would be the dragon. The beast, of course, is the beast. And the false prophet is the beast that rises from the earth. But let me ask you, who is it that uses the kings of the earth? Who's behind them? Satan. And where is he spoken about? You see, the shadow ruler is the political powers, the kings of the earth. But when you get to chapter 20, you find the power behind the power. It says the dragon is bound for a thousand years. The dragon uses the kings of the earth. Okay, so anyway, you have this triple union, this threefold union. Is there going to be a great counterfeit revival at the end of time? There most certainly is. So is there going to be a genuine revival? You know, in Atlanta, Ted Wilson, in his inaugural sermon, said that what we need most, the theme of his presidency, is revival and reformation. I think that's the theme that needed to be chosen. And I believe that the Lord has raised up Elder Wilson for a time such as this. And we need to pray for him and for those that surround him because he has to face unbelievable pressures. I don't even want to imagine what it's like to be president of the General Conference now. He's called for revival and reformation. The true. Now let me read you a couple statements from Ellen White. 
This is Review and Herald, March 22, 1887. She says, A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work. She gets that? What is the, our greatest and most urgent of all needs and should be our first work? A revival of true godliness. Now, if, if it's, there's a revival of true godliness, there must be a what? A false revival of false godliness. Now, what is revival? Let me read you another statement from Ellen White. Review and Herald, February 25, 1902. Review and Herald, February 25, 1902. Listen to what she says. This is a powerful statement. She says, A revival and a reformation must take place under the ministration of the Holy Spirit. Now, revival and reformation are two different things. Different but not separable. She continues saying, Revival signifies a renewal of spiritual life, which means that you're spiritually dead, spiritually dead, by the way. Revival signifies a renewal of spiritual life. A quickening of the powers of mind and heart. A resurrection from spiritual death. You know, somebody yesterday was asking whether the three phrases that Ellen White uses there in the quotation in Desire of Ages, where it says, you know, the... Um, Sons of God, the representative of, of the world, etc. There's three phrases that are saying basically the same thing in different words, whether maybe those are three different groups. And uh, really, um, when these expressions are separated by commas, it's simply an amplification. It's the same group that is described in three different ways. Uh, here's another example from Ellen White of this phenomenon, because when she says here that revival signifies a renewal of spiritual life, a quickening, what does quickening mean? giving life, right? A quickening of the powers of mind and heart, a resurrection from spiritual death, those are three ways of saying the same thing, right? Then she says, that's revival. So what is revival? It means that you're spiritually dead, and what happens? You come to Christ, and you're revived. But now she's going to define reformation. She says, reformation signifies a reorganization a change, now listen, a change in ideas and theories. Where do we have ideas and theories? In our thinking. In other words, she's saying that, that Reformation signifies a reorganization, a change in our thinking, in our ideas and theories. And then she says, habits and practices. That's behavior. In other words, Reformation means a change in our way of thinking and our way of acting. Then she says, Reformation will not bring forth the good fruit of righteousness unless it is connected with the revival of the Spirit. Revival and Reformation are to their, do their appointed work, and in doing this work, they must blend. There's a lot of talk in the Christian world today about revival. But there's not much talk about Reformation. Even in the Adventist church, there's a lot of talk about revival, but there's not a lot of talk about Reformation. 
Now let me say this. Revival without reformation is mere emotionalism. And reformation without revival is legalism. Let me ask you, if you're driving on an icy road in the winter and it's terribly slippery, which ditch would you rather fall into? The left ditch or the right ditch? (laughs) It doesn't matter which ditch you fall into. You're still going to need a record to pull you out. The devil doesn't mind if we emphasize reformation, you know, dress and diet and all this, and we pound away at people, you know, if they're not revived. He doesn't care if we say, oh, revival and music and dancing in the aisles and having a good time and just saying hallelujah and praise the Lord, but no change in the life. He doesn't mind. What the devil fears is when we resurrect to spiritual life and then the life changes in their proper order. Then the devil trembles because he knows that this is the real deal. But do you know what the devil's revival is going to be like? The Babel revival? The counterfeit revival? Great Controversy 463. Listen to this. Because we have this idea that we have to import into the Adventist church all of the practices of the Christian churches so that we can grow. Do evangelism like them. Use the music like them. Worship like them. Uh, uh, Uh-uh-uh. The message has its own power. It's the message that has the power. That's what people are looking for. Let me ask you. An individual individual can get a a shot of adrenaline. How long does it last? You throw kerosene on the fire. How long does it last? It goes whoosh. That's what modern revivals are like. Ellen White speaks about this. She says, popular revivals are too often carried by appeals to the imagination, by exciting the emotions, by gratifying the love for what is new and startling. Listen carefully. Converts thus gained have little desire to listen to Bible truth. Little interest in the testimony of prophets and apostles. Unless a religious service has something of a sensational character, it has no attractions for them. A message which appeals to the unimpassioned reason awakens no response. The plain warnings of God's word relating directly to their eternal interests are unheeded. I especially like that expression, a message which appeals to the unimpassioned reason. What does Ellen White mean by unimpassioned reason? She simply means a message that appeals to your brain. It needs to reach your heart, don't get me wrong. But it has to go through your brain to your heart. Not directly to the heart. Now let me read you a statement from Ellen White where she explains what unimpassioned reason is. She's speaking about courtship. It's found in Adventist Home, page 70. She says, 
If there is any subject that should be considered with calm reason and unimpassioned judgment, it is the subject of marriage. (laughs) Notice, calm reason and unimpassioned judgment. She's saying, don't let your emotions get involved. Think with your brain. I always tell young people, listen, let love go through your brain to your heart. Are you listening, Justin? (laughs) She continues saying, if ever the Bible is needed as a counselor, it is before taking a step that binds persons together for life. But the prevailing sentiment is that in this matter, the feelings are to be the guide. And in too many cases, lovesick sentimentalism takes the helm and guides to certain ruin. It is here that the youth show less intelligence than on any other subject. It is here that they refuse to be reasoned with. The question of marriage seems to have a bewitching power over them. They do not submit themselves to God. Their senses are enchained and they move forward in secretiveness as if fearful that their plans would be interfered with with someone. Interfered with by someone. So do you understand what she means by unimpassioned judgment and reason? And yet these days, you know, the church has got all caught up in music. Music has swallowed up the message. I've been to churches where I've been invited to speak and the praise service lasts an hour and 15 minutes and then they say, uh, now you're next, you have 15 minutes. The Adventist church has always been a message-centered church. And I pray to the Lord that it will always be so. Let me ask you, was there a great apostasy before Israel entered the promised land? And you know what? Apostasy does not transpire overnight. It is a prolonged and almost imperceptible process. It begins with seemingly small compromises. And then it snowballs into open rebellion against God. That's what happened with Solomon. Let me read you a statement from Ellen White about Solomon. Prophets and Kings, page 55. She says, so gradual was Solomon's apostasy that before he was aware of it, he had wandered far from God. Almost imperceptibly, notice the expression she uses, almost imperceptibly, he began to trust less and less in divine guidance and blessing and to put confidence in his own strength. Little by little, he withheld from God that unswerving obedience which was to make Israel a peculiar people. And he conformed more and more closely to the customs of the surrounding nations. So how does apostasy come into the church? It comes into the church slowly, imperceptibly, by making small concessions. God is calling us not to make those small concessions. He wants the church to experience revival that will lead to a change in behavior. 
to a change in the life. The change in the life does not save us. It's an evidence that we have been saved. It's the fruit that proves the nature of the tree. Now I'm going to, I'm going to step on toes. So hang on to your seat. An example of this slow, imperceptible slide away from God's plan is found in the use of the wedding ring. I'm not condemning anybody here. Everybody has their motive. I'm not examining the motive of your hearts. I just want to give you a little bit of history. North American Division made a request that church members be allowed to use a wedding ring. And the argument was that the culture required it. Now, I want to read what Ellen White had to say about this. She once wrote to some missionaries that went to Australia, American missionaries that went to Australia, who felt that over there they needed to put on a wedding ring because culture demanded it. I want you to notice what she said. I feel deeply, this is Testimonies to Ministers 180 and 181, she says, I feel deeply over this leavening process, which seems to be going on among us, in the conformity to custom and fashion. Leavening process. Does leaven work instantaneously? Works slowly. She continues saying, Not one penny should be spent for a circlet of gold to testify that we are married. In countries where the custom is imperative, what is imperative? Law. We have no burden to condemn those who have their marriage ring. Let them wear it if they can do so conscientiously. But then she says this, she's speaking about North America now. But let not our missionaries feel that the wearing of the ring will increase their influence one jot or tittle. I don't believe it's necessary in North America, I'll be honest with you. I've never worn one. I've never had anybody make a pass at me. (laughs) And I'm sure you say, we can understand that. Do you know why? Because from the get-go, I let people know I'm married by my behavior. There's no doubts whatsoever about the fact that I'm married because I act married. Folks, leaven does not work quickly. It works slowly, silently, almost imperceptibly. Now, what has happened as a result of this slight and small change that was made in the North American Division? You know what's happened. You can see it in Adventist churches today. The church is full of engagement rings, graduation rings, ornamental rings, earrings, bracelets, necklaces, etc. Because once the door is opened a crack, the door is knocked down. You know, in recent years... Adventists in the so-called developed countries 
have embraced all sorts of practices that are at odds with the principles of God's holy word. All in the name of culture. Another name for culture is everybody's doing it. Let me give you some examples. Contemporary musical styles have been made a matter of culture. The use of jewelry and immodest dress have been made or sanctified by an appeal to culture. Worship styles are embraced in the name of culture. Entertainment choices are justified on the basis of culture. Drinking wine with meals is condoned because of culture. Competitive sports in our schools is attributed to the practice of culture. And lax Sabbath observance can be traced to the influence of culture. Now listen carefully. Before you can make an appeal to culture to justify many of the things that are happening that are leading us to not experience true revival and reformation, in order to justify those things, you have to neutralize the testimony of the spirit of prophecy. Now, you don't want to openly deny the spirit of prophecy. But you have to neutralize it some way. Because Ellen White speaks to all of these issues, clearly. So, the argument that is used is that these practices that Ellen White frowns upon, she was speaking to a puritanical and Victorian age. And that she, what she says is no longer applicable to a culture that has come of age. In this way, the authority of the spirit of prophecy and the writings of Paul and Peter, I might say, has been made of none effect. They have not been openly denied, but they have been made of none effect by saying that they applied there and not here. Let me read you from Ellen White, volume 10 of Manuscript Releases, page 310. Ellen White says, The very last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect, notice she's not saying denying, is to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Satan will work ingeniously in different ways and through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's remnant people in the true testimony. We are seeing that. And now the pressures of the feminist media culture have led us to strive for women's ordination in the name of equality, justice, and mercy. And saying that the reason why some of us are opposed to women's ordination is because we are discriminating and we exhibit male bigotry. Where will the process end? If we look at what's happened to other churches, it will end with the ordination of gay pastors in the name of equality, mercy, and justice. It's being used. How long will it be until the media barrage against creationism will lead us to give in and say, okay, you know, man came into existence by evolution? Say, that could never happen. Never say never. You see, when we make small concessions, folks, it opens the door 
It opens the floodgates to the point where we lose our identity as God's remnant people. Now I'd like to end by asking the question, has God called us to reflect culture and be slaves of culture, or has God called us to transform culture? He's called us to transform culture. That's the reason for the existence of GYC. That's why we, we say we're supposed to go out and share the message that the gospel not only revives us, but the gospel changes us, makes us different. I want to finish by reading Great Controversy 464. Does the devil know that the true revival is right around the corner? He does. So what is he going to do? We're seeing it today. He's going to bring about a counterfeit revival. This is what Ellen White says. Notwithstanding the widespread declension of faith and piety, piety, there are true followers of Christ in these churches. Most of God's true people are in the other churches. And she says this, Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of God such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. I'm, that's what we're longing for, right? She says, The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon His children. And now notice what's going to happen. At that time, many will separate themselves from those churches in which the love of this world has supplanted love for God and His Word. Many, both of ministers and people, will gladly accept those great truths. Notice it's not emotion, the music, and all these other things. These great truths which God has caused to be proclaimed at this time to prepare people for the Lord's second coming. Now listen up. The enemy of souls desires to hinder this work. And before the time of such a, the time of such a movement shall come, he will endeavor to prevent it by introducing a counterfeit. So what comes first, the genuine and then the counterfeit or first the counterfeit and then the genuine? The counterfeit and then the genuine. I believe we're seeing the counterfeit today. She continues saying, in those churches which he can bring under his deceptive power, he will make it appear that God's special blessing is poured out. There will be a they will be manifest what is thought to be a great religious interest. Multitudes will exalt that God is working marvelously for them when the work is that of another spirit. Under a religious guise, Satan will seek to extend his influence over the Christian world. But God will have a faithful remnant. You know, I believe right now we're in the shaking. And we haven't seen anything yet compared with what's coming. Shaking in the Adventist church. But this is God's church. We need to hang in here. We need to speak up. Amen. We need to support the church Amen. with our tithes and offerings. Amen. We need to be faithful. Amen. We can't remain silent. No. 
And sometimes we say, well, you know, I'm not going to say anything because if I say something, it costs strife, and we want unity. We don't want strife. When we see things that are wrong, we need to speak up in love and in kindness and try to find a change, the change that God wants for our church. So, folks, I hope and pray that all of us will be involved in this great movement. Do you believe we're living in the last moments of time? I believe, folks, that we are in the last remnant of time. All of the signs point to it, outside the church and inside the church. Now is the time for us to dedicate ourselves without reservation to have a revival in our lives, a revival that leads to a change in our life so that the world can see the difference. You know, the way that people know that an avocado tree is an avocado tree is because it produces avocados. (laughs) By its fruit, you know it. The fruit is the result. The fruit does not make the avocado tree an avocado tree. But because the avocado tree is an avocado tree, it produces avocados. We're not saved by our lifestyle. But when we are saved, our lifestyle will change. Our musical taste will change. What we eat will change. How we dress will change. How we worship will change. The kind of music we listen to will change. The programs we watch on television will change. Everything will be new and changed because of a commitment to Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the time we've been able to spend together. We realize that there's going to be a great false Pentecost. We can see it now. This great false Pentecost caused by the counterfeit trinity and counterfeit three angels message. But we're thankful that you have promised that the true is right around the corner. And we want to be part of that. What a tremendous privilege it will be to proclaim your truth in a world that is almost totally hardened in rebellion. We ask, Lord, that you will use us, that you will give us a true conversion experience that will lead to a change in every aspect of our lives. We thank you, Father, for having been with us this morning. We ask that you will continue to bless all of the activities at GYC. We thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.